Wow. Tremendous singing this morning. Thank you so much for uh, your participation in our music ministry. Thank you to our team for doing a great job each week in, in leading us. Uh, so much of the music we sang this morning, uh, incredibly appropriate to the message and where we're going today in week two of our series through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. We began our series last week, and on the screen there are some reminders and some hopeful outcomes that we'll share in together as we work through uh, three sermons in each of the five books of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And as we gather to accompany the sacred text of Scripture together this morning, I want to pause and just say thank you for allowing me to share this space with you each week. This is a tremendous privilege. It's an opportunity to be together with you on Sunday mornings. And to be honest with you, I can't think of a space that I would rather be in on Sunday mornings during this time than this space right here with you. Thank you very much. We move into week two of Job, and we have discovered that Job is a hard and heavy text to read and study and reflect on. In it, we are confronted with many uncomfortable tensions and difficult paradoxes in our collective desire to know God deeper and be formed in Christ. And today we're going to enter a long middle section of Job where we're going to rehearse from the end of chapter 2 all of the way through chapter 37. And I promise we will not be here all morning. As we left Job last week, he was sitting on an ash heap. He was devastated by the tragedy and the suffering that had come upon him. Today... We meet Job's friends. <clears throat> friends. And with friends like Job has, who needs enemies? That's right. When we suffer and when we go through hard times, we long to be comforted by those who know and love us best. Job is in a space where he needs to feel the closeness and the comfort of friends who care. And so how, as the body of Christ and as individuals who are part of it, might we be present with one who is suffering in a way that brings comfort, strength, and relief? By and large, Job's friends are going to show us how not to do this today. They are going to serve for us as an example of what not to do as we seek to care, comfort, and seek hope with those who are suffering. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and also Elihu. And they remind us that when we are present with those who are suffering, our faults are often revealed in our attempts to fix or find reasons for our own or another's suffering. And we need examples like Job's friends. They are here to remind us. We don't point a finger at them and say, oh, I am so glad I'm not like those guys. As one biblical scholar accurately summarized, he said, quote, 
We are indeed a nation of Job's friends. End quote. These texts are difficult because they make us stop. They make us sit and pay attention to the tensions and uncertainties that exist when we search for reasons regarding why the righteous suffer or when we search for answers behind why the wicked prosper. And these texts remind us that often the reasons, answers, and certainties that we desire are elusive. And grasping at or for reasons may actually lead to greater confusion in our suffering or the suffering of others. Next week, in our final week of Job, we will be guided to the conclusion that all suffering is meaningful and purposeful, while also recognizing the tension that on this side of heaven, the full meaning will always evade us, and its true purpose will only be known dimly and incompletely. But for today, it is enough for us to simply remember that God is seated with us in our suffering. And as we suffer, He is situated and positioned in such a way that is perfectly suited to give us comfort and hope in our deepest valleys and our most troubling of waters. Friends, I need God's help. We need God's help as His imperfect children to watch, observe, listen, and learn how we might be present in a way that is right and helpful with those who are suffering. We begin in Job chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or your devices, let's go ahead and find Job chapter 2. And today we're going to begin in verses 11 through 13. And before we read, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit for His help that he might apply to each of our hearts and minds exactly what is needed as we step into the scriptures this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, situated in heaven, your name is holy, righteous, good, and true. We ask for your kingdom to come Right now, starting with your church and for your will to be done here in this space as it is in heaven. As we gather today, we seek to be nourished and enriched by your daily bread, your word, the bread of life. Give us this day the bread we need and forgive us where we have failed to give comfort, strength, and relief to those in our spaces who suffer. We also ask that you would forgive those who have demeaned, belittled, or made light of our own pain and suffering. Lead us not into the temptations of personal comfort and convenience. Deliver us from the evil of apathy or indifference towards those in pain. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. 
And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. We start with the good. There isn't much. Perhaps just these few short verses. Job's friends show up. And they show up with an intent to offer sympathy and comfort. And we cannot begin to care for or sit with those who suffer if we don't show up first in some manner. A call, a card, a text message, a visit, an email, a direct message through social media, a meal, a ride, prayer with a follow-up to let a person know we've prayed, all appropriate ways to show up and be present for someone in suffering. Initially, Job's friends even assume the appropriate posture as they weep and they mourn with Job. They're sprinkling dust over their heads as a sign of humility and grief, identifying with Job. And yet, in the end, we will discover that the inconvenience and discomfort of Job's suffering is far too much for his friends to endure Though their initial posture is right, their patience, persistence, and perseverance with Job in his suffering is lacking. And at the end of this section, we discover that Job's friends are more concerned about making sense of Job's devastation for their own relief than in truly comforting or offering real sympathy and compassion for Job. When the suffering of another person is uncomfortable or disruptive to us, then we have only begun to scratch the surface of what that person may be enduring or experiencing. It is the very moment that we want to open our mouths that we may need to pause and sit in silence. The very moment when we want to run or step away or step from under, that we may need to stay and sit in and be present with. The very moment where we want to separate ourselves and move to a distance may be the very moment where we need to move closer and offer embrace. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar become obsessed, as we will see, with resolving or alleviating their own moral dilemmas related to Job's suffering than to truly tend to Job's needs. It's more important for them to make sense of the suffering than it is to comfort, strengthen, and give relief to Job, the one who is suffering. Each of Job's friends will have their own perspectives on this matter of suffering. One friend is going to share, then Job is going to respond, then another friend is going to share, and the cycle is going to repeat itself three times in chapters 3 to 31. Eliphaz and Bildad will both give three speeches, Zophar, 
is only allowed to give two. Perhaps it's because he's not really saying anything new. Finally, in chapters 32 to 37, we're introduced to yet another of Job's sanctimonious friends. His name is Elihu. And though Elihu keeps God in focus and attempts to ground Job's suffering in an ultimate purpose and meaning, he will still be guilty of many of the same missteps as Job's other friends. Time limits us this morning of a full inventory of everything that Job's friends said to him, but the scope of their messages can be summarized, which is the matter we will attend to next, beginning with Eliphaz. Eliphaz, Job's first friend who comes to him, gives speeches in chapters 4 and 5, chapters 15, and chapters 22 of Job. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, Call to mind now, who, being innocent, ever perished? And where were upright people ever destroyed? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble reap the same. Eliphaz's focus is on Job's personal sin. Essentially, he presents us a case that goes something like this. People who are upright and blameless don't suffer. We always reap what we sow. Your children suffered because of your sins, Job. Chapter 5, verse 4. God is disciplining, disciplining you as a result of your sin, Job, chapter 5, verse 17. You drink in evil like water, Job. What kind of friend? Chapter 15, verse 16. Finally, in chapter two, 22, verse 5, is not your wickedness great, and is there no end to your iniquity? The summary of Eliphaz's words at the end of chapter 22 goes something like this. Job, it's in your hands. Get yourself right with God and your sufferings will simply cease. Again, the fault is in the fix. If only life were so black and white, so cut and dry, so simplistic. The reality is that many who are righteous will suffer and walk through difficult seasons in life. Our salvation, which involves our being declared righteous, does not come with a golden ticket or a get-out-of-suffering-free pass. Eliphaz's understanding, then, is incomplete. It's riddled with half-truths, lies, the twisting of Scripture to help alleviate and make sense of his own discomfort related to Job's lot. Next is a friend named Bildad. And for those of you Lord of the Rings fans out there, it is not Bill Bo, it's Bildad. Bildad, too, will give three speeches, chapter 8, chapter 18, and chapter 25. In chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he says this, But if you will look to God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you, Job, become pure and upright, even now, God will rouse himself for you and will restore your righteous home. Verse 20 of chapter 8. 
Surely God does not reject a blameless man, nor does He grasp the hand of evildoers. In Bildad's mind, if Job were righteous, God would rouse Himself to restore him if he were blameless. Job, this suffering is your fault. In his speeches, Bildad focuses on sin that existed within Job's family. Your children were destroyed as a result of their own sin. Chapter 8, verse 4. Job, you think our assessments of your suffering are stupid. That's what Bildad said. Job was right. Chapter 18, verse 3. This is a revelation of Bildad's own insecurities, by the way. You get what you deserve. You reap what you sow, Job, chapter 18, 21. Everyone is guilty. We're all but a bunch of maggots and worms. Chapter 25, verse 6, it's in there. Bildad's expressions are given in full denial of the new creation that is formed within the spirit of the one who walks by faith and is credited as righteous. A credit which God clearly bestows upon Job at the beginning of the book in chapters 1 and 2. Like Eliphaz then, Bildad's understanding of Job's suffering is also incomplete. It's riddled with half-truths, lies, and the twisting of Scripture to assuage his own insecurities related to Job's circumstances. And then there's Zophar. Zophar only gets two speeches. Zophar's speeches can be found in chapter 11 and chapter 20. In chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, Zophar says the following, But if only God would speak... If only he would open his lips against you and reveal to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides, so that you would know that God has forgiven some of your sins. Then verse 13 to 17, As for you, if you prove faithful and if you stretch out your hands towards him, Job, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let evil reside in your tent, for then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be securely established and will not fear, for you will forget your trouble. You will remember it like water that's flowed away, and life will be brighter than the noonday. Though there'll be darkness, it will be like the morning. Zophar gives some focus to Job's corporate relationships or dealings. He speaks with wisdom, but he misattributes or misapplies it to Job's circumstances, often. In the end, he concludes, speaking of the disaster that comes upon the evil and the wicked, such is the lot God allots the wicked. And the heritage of his appointment is from God. Just stop sinning, Job. And stop hanging out with the people who are sinning. Then, God will change your lot. Zophar, yes, shares some wisdom, but he's still dealing in half-truths. 
misrepresenting and misunderstanding the ways in which God defined and described Job as one who was righteous and blameless. As I was rehearsing and reflecting on the words of Job's friends this week, the thought occurred to me that Job's friends' words sound to me much more like the voice of Satan in the garden than the voice of truth. Satan loves to misattribute, misapply, and misuse God's wisdom to accomplish his purposes. Rather than naming and sitting in the difficult pain and realities that were existing in Job's life, Job's friends decide instead to deal in generalities stemming from their incomplete and twisted understandings of God's character. Rather than providing truth that might comfort and motivate hope and endurance, their words are full of lies that condemn, conflict, convict, even criticize Job, piling on and adding to his already heavy affliction. Not only is Job experiencing deep pain and suffering from the loss that he has just walked through and that's just befallen him, but now he's left in a position where with his friends he has to justify or defend his own integrity and character as they question his life. In his despair, Job's friends have put him on trial to help themselves feel more comfortable about what he is experiencing and where it came from. They offer that Job is responsible for his suffering when the scriptures have clearly revealed it was Satan. In their words, they suggest that God has brought this calamity when the text clearly attributes the touching of Job's life to Satan's hands. In their words, they will posit that Job must be unrighteous and crooked. He must be a worm and a maggot and a sinner, worthy of blame, deserving of torment, when God has clearly declared, and not just declared, but celebrated in the presence of Satan, Job, as one who was upright and blameless, who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. Their assessments, Job's friends' assessments, are a strong reminder to us that we should pause, pause and sit and wait before offering reasons or giving insights related to why someone may be suffering. We don't see from God's perspective. We only know in part our view is dim and incomplete. Rather than a fix or finding fault, can we walk with those who are suffering with compassion, patience, and long-suffering towards spaces of comfort, strength, and relief? Do you know that God actually has a judgment for the words of Job's friends in Job's book? Job chapter 42, verses 7 to 9. God's judgment on Job's friend's words. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, 
The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job has his own assessment for his friends, his own advice. And in it, he reveals what we all truly long for when we are walking in seasons of turmoil and adversity. Job chapter 16, verses 2 to 5. Then Job replied, I've heard many things like these before. What miserable comforters are you all? I love that verse. When you read those speeches, you'll be like, amen. They are rough. Will there be an end to your windy words? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could pile up words against you. I could shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my words. Comfort would come from my lips and bring you relief. This is what Job is looking for from his friends. Not condemnation. Not accusation. Comfort. Strength. Relief. Then later, Job will remind his friends of the hope and the truth with which he already is clinging to in his suffering. He does not need them to remind him of what he already knows to be true. Part of it's our memory verse for this month. Let's say it together. Job 19.25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job 19.25. He continues in verses 26 and 27, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I will see for myself, and whom my own eyes will behold, and not another. My heart grows faint within me. Though his heart was growing faint, his hope was not lost. He's clinging to a bright and clear future where he would look upon God with flesh that would be free from corruption. And there he would behold God's glory with his own eyes. And one of our goals as we work through each of the texts in this series is to look through this text towards Jesus. Jesus suffered. And he sat and walked and stood with those who were suffering. He came close 
And in His closeness, He brought us the possibility of eternal comfort. Our suffering servant was given comfort, strength, and relief in His suffering and gave comfort, strength, and relief to those who suffered. Our wounded healer was broken, buried, left for dead, and then life, breath, resurrection. The wounded and the suffering who come to Him, He heals and raises to new life with Him. If you have time this week, perhaps you'd like to reflect further on the voices of Job's friends. If you want to read a good side-by-side in the New Testament, if you go to John chapter 4, verse 9, and read those chapters alongside of Job's friends' speeches, you might look for the voices other than Jesus that will remind you of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. There are many in John chapter 4 through 9 that sound very similar to Job's friends. Job's friends held on to a view or a thinking about God known as a retributive view of theology. The root of all suffering is solely attributed to and isolated as a direct result of a person or our own sin. In this view, if a person suffers, it cannot be possible for that person or their associates to be considered as righteous. Retributive theology then can only make sense of suffering by attributing its existence to the sufferer's sin or unrighteousness. This way of thinking is pervasive. We see it with Job's friends. We see it today. It was alive and active in Jesus' day as well. Let me share an example with you from Jesus' day. John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come near to a man who had been blind from birth. And in chapter 9, verse 2, his disciples say, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused this man to be born blind? This man or his parents? This is retributive theology. The question is fertilized in the soil of a retributive view of God. Jesus' response is insightful. John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. In short, in that short reply, Jesus buries the idea that all suffering is directly anchored to or rooted in a person's sin or unrighteousness. And while sin and death affects and have effect in this broken and fallen world, and they may be at the root of all suffering, the truth remains that God is able to bring beauty from ashes and that not all suffering is a direct result or directly tied to our sin and unrighteousness. Jumping to this conclusion when faced with suffering leads us into a number of logical, illogical fallacies related to our understanding of God's justice, righteousness, and mercy. If retributive theology were always true and we only reaped what we sowed all the time, there would be no salvation. But it is exactly because retributive theology is not true that we experience the grace of God. 
being given something we don't deserve and haven't sown. And the mercy of God. Not receiving a consequence or a punishment that our attitudes or behaviors have reaped. You see, the gospel presents us with a Messiah who comes to us while we are sowing nothing but disaster. And he saves us from reaping the consequences of what we have sown when we turn to him. In this, he promises to give us grace sufficient enough to hold us together And he holds us together when the winds and the waves batter us against the breakers of this world's brokenness. Jesus steps into a world of suffering and he himself suffers with us. And in this way, our sufferings help us to identify more closely with Christ. He sees us. He knows us perfectly right where we are at in our moments of deepest pain and suffering. Therefore, we don't have to seek to dismiss the things that are difficult, disruptive, uncomfortable, and unsettling related to our suffering. Rather, we can unite in Christian community around the revelation that God is present with us in our suffering. Evidence of His presence found in the Holy Spirit's persistent indwelling and in our calling out of darkness and placement into this Christian community we call the church. It is in the church where we learn to suffer well as we love one another and bear one another's burdens in love, weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn. It is here where we learn to depend on God in our suffering. It is here in the church where we learn that our suffering can be productive, that it is meaningful and useful to others within our community. That God has not called us to suffer alone and in secret, but instead together as one body. There's weeping, there's mourning, but there's celebrating and rejoicing as well. And as we do these things together in community, we learn of the glorious grace and mercy of Christian community, where we need both God and one another. So, what of practical considerations when we are present with those who suffering are suffering? I have three actions for us to avoid and two to pursue. First, let's avoid being like Job's friends and dealing in generalities. Rather, let's name the realities, see the hurt, and acknowledge it. We might say to someone, I see this is hard. This feels like a really heavy burden. Can I sit here a while with you and bear this pain together with you? Two, perhaps we avoid the fix, again like Job's friends, or avoid the need to find reasons. Instead, through our presence and our prayers, offer strength and comfort. And relief, we might say something like this I'm here for you, however long this takes. 
I don't have any reasons or answers. I cannot resolve this pain, but I care about you, and I do not want you to walk through this season alone. Number three, perhaps we would avoid the application of a timeline. Job's friends were happy to suffer with him for seven days, but once seven days came, time to get on with it, Job. Mm-mm. Avoid the application of a timeline for our own or another person's suffering. Friends, everyone, everyone, everyone walks through valleys of grief mourning and suffering differently. There is no identical grief. Everyone who grieves is unique. And one way that we can honor the dignity and the humanity of each person who is in suffering is not by asking them to suffer or grieve according to our own comfort, convenience, or timeline, but allowing them the space and the time that they need to walk through that valley and be present with them and then two actions that we might pursue as the opportunity presents perhaps we would pray with those who are suffering in a way that bears their pain toward Jesus rehearsing with them his desire to carry and hold us together through our suffering and our pain we might say this is really hard And it feels really heavy. I wonder how we might present this pain to Jesus. I know he wants to bear it for you. And then perhaps we would listen, wait, and watch for the Spirit to prompt a return to be present in prayer again. Friends, as our team comes this morning... This is ongoing work. It's far too greater for any one person to do or manage on their own. This is work that requires faithful presence. And as a community, we must remain watchful and vigilant to the Spirit's prompting as to when to go, when to pray, and when to wait. In our suffering, when we're patient, quiet, sitting with one another, standing with one another, present with one another, there is comfort for today, strength for tomorrow, and grace enough for each and every moment from now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, what an example that we've been presented with in your text today. Conflicting, perplexing, difficult. To sit with someone in suffering, Father, is not easy. It is not a privilege or an opportunity that we can take lightly. It requires full dependence on you to do it well. And to remember that you are present with us in every one of those spaces, giving grace, showering us with mercy, covering us with your love. Lord, could you help us to be brave enough to sit with those in pain, 
And Father, as my prayer has been for this series and will continue, if there are any suffering within this room or watching online who are suffering in secret, Lord, help them be brave and courageous to share their suffering. It's not your desire that any suffer alone. We are a community, a body of Christ. So, Lord, allow us to be safe people to suffer together with. We look to you and we cling to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.